other than the technical glitch, everything's fine. Good to see you here and know that there are those on the phone. Uh, Linda Davis did apparently break her knee in a fall uh, up in Michigan the last few days and uh, might keep a, a prayer or two going up for Linda because it's, uh, she's had a lot of health problems, uh, quite a bit of heart problems among other things and to fall and, and hurt her knee like that is going to be difficult for her. <clears throat> so please keep Linda Davis in mind. Well, there are a few things that I might address in terms of the news in the country before we get straight into the sermon, although it certainly ties in, I think, time-wise. Everything is getting to where it's very timely these days. <clears throat> but I heard a report just this morning uh, from a very good source that there, the UN has just moved 250,000 troops into Cuba. Uh, apparently light infantry, not heavy war material, has come with it because that's a massive undertaking. But 250,000 troops, uh, that's a lot of people. <laughs> and Cuba is 90 miles from Florida. Now, I digested that information, and there were some references also in the report that with Virginia calling on at least the National Guard and perhaps the UN to enforce the gun confiscation, which they are targeting to start about the middle of January, whether that will be delayed or not, only time will tell. <clears throat> but I got thinking about why would you move that many troops in unless there is some reason fairly soon that you're going to need them? In other words, why would you move them in five years ahead of time and then you have to house and feed them and take care of them over a long period of time before you get around to using them? I would have to use simple logic to say there must be a reason they're there suddenly uh, in order to be used. Now they've been gathering UN uh, trucks, uh, vehicles, and so on. I've seen pictures of them scattered around the United States, in Wyoming, in New Jersey, and other places. For some years now they've been uh, increasing the number of those vehicles. And you'll remember not too long ago, has it been a year or two now, uh, because of the violence and the crime in Chicago, uh, was it the mayor or the governor? I think it was the mayor, was talking about bringing UN troops in to help battle the crime wave in Chicago. So it's illegal to bring UN troops into sovereign U.S. soil, but nothing the government is doing these days now is uh, legal, or very little. Uh, the Constitution has been trashed. Uh, in the same report, it was mentioned, and I've been hearing for some years now, that a lot of communist troops, or I mean Chinese troops, have been moved into the United States. Uh, there are apparently a large number of Chinese troops on our southern border, not far from El Paso, 
and the Chinese have now been in control of the port of uh, San Diego for, or no, no, it's Long Beach, I guess. They've been in San Diego as well, but they've been in charge of the port of Long Beach, the main port into, into L.A., for 20 years now. And it is reported that there are 5 million Chinese troops on American soil right now. Uh, they're building huge solar plants uh, around the country, all over the West, uh, and they're apparently also running them. And you say, well, I, I don't see any Chinese troops around. Think about that a minute. I got to toying with that thought. Why don't I see them? My son has told me, living in Colorado Springs, that he sees Russian soldiers there on a very regular basis. Uh, they come and go in the malls and in Walmart and here and there, and they're speaking Russian. Young men, they're not in military uh, clothing, they're in civilian clothing, but they're speaking Russians, and he says it's quite common to see them in Colorado Springs. I was in a motel having breakfast a year or so ago, and a couple of Chi uh, not Chinese, a couple of Russian guys came in, young men speaking Russian. And uh, I figured they were probably some of the Russian troops that are here. They're just kind of scattered around, deployed wherever. I got to thinking about five million, though. Where, where are they hiding them? Have you been to a national park lately? I go to national parks in the West every year, some, some one or another, or two or three or four a year. And about 50 to 60% of all the people you see in Yosemite or Yellowstone or wherever are Chinese now. Uh, you'll see another 10% maybe of Indians from India, and then the rest are Europeans and Americans. How often do you see a bus full of Chinese all over the West? Drive to St. George, you'll see a bus full of Chinese. You start, you look at a motel, here's a bus full of Chinese emptying out. Everywhere you look, there are Chinese. They're all over the place, hiding in plain sight. There are a lot of young people on those buses. A lot of young people in the parks. Now, there's some old ones among them. You don't see many children. Uh, but they could be moving troops in uh, civilian clothing all over this nation. And no one would even know it, because it's so common to see a bus with Chinese writing on the side, and every time you see one stop, out pours a bus full of Chinese. So they're all over the place. Uh, you've seen them, I've seen them. Uh, they're Zion here, Grand Canyon. They're all over the place. Rice Canyon. And any park you go to. I haven't been back east much in a few years, but... Uh, I suspect that they're all over the east as well as the west here. They fly in all over the place and get on their buses. It appears that things are getting much closer. Have you read in the last three, four, five days about the drones flying all over eastern, northeastern Colorado and Nebraska? Uh, these are drones with six-foot wingspans. And they're flying over about 30 of them in a grid-like fashion all over the counties in northeast Colorado and Nebraska. Uh, the sheriffs are upset, wondering what's going on in their county. People are wondering. 
Well, according to, a, again, a very reputable inside source in Homeland Security, uh, these are run by the Department of Homeland Security. And they are taking pictures, and they have apparently equipment on board to detect cellars and tunnels, underground cavities, and also uh, equipment to detect steel pipe. What is a rifle? It's a steel pipe. What's a pistol? It's a short steel pipe. Uh, they are apparently going over and using those counties as a, a starting place to detect every gun and ammo depot and large caches of guns that they can find so that they'll be able to dig them up and confiscate them. At least that's the alleged purpose of it from some inside sources. So things are happening very, very rapidly now. If you've noticed, there have been several big bank and credit card snafus where people couldn't use their credit cards or couldn't withdraw from banks. That's happened across the country. They've had rolling electrical blackouts in California. Uh, things are going on that are preparing for a huge cyber attack, perhaps, where they take down the Internet and take down the electrical grid. Then what happens? Utter chaos. You can't buy or sell because you don't have the Internet to clear credit cards and so on. And the whole system is run on the Internet now. So you can't do anything. And trucks can't get fuel to deliver food. And there'll be no food to deliver. This doesn't have to take place over a long period of time. You know, Ezekiel tells us that a third of us will die of famine and pestilence one-third by the sword, and one-third be taken into captivity, and a sword go after them. Does it have to be just the weather that causes famine? What's famine? Lack of food. If the electrical grid goes down and the trucks can't move, you got what? Lack of food. That's famine. And following that comes pestilence and disease. Waste can't be removed. Sewers don't work. Nothing works. So you have famine and pestilence. You have a nation then on its knees that can easily be invaded and taken over, especially if you initiate a civil war first. And in Virginia, they're not just trying to confiscate the guns, believe me. They don't want your guns, they want you dead. And the way to kill you is to first take your guns and then come back and kill you the way the Chinese have done and the way the Russians did and the way... They've done it in the Middle East and in Africa. That's what they do. They don't want your gun. They want to melt it. They want you dead in the street. And if they can get a civil war started, that covers a lot of the crimes of some of the Democrats, uh, and it gets rid of an awful lot of people and creates chaos where the New World Order and the UN can come in and take over as all the scriptures have been telling us. So, I think it's becoming imminent. I don't think they move that 250,000 UN troops in there without probably planning on flying them into Virginia in the middle of the night to air bases or airports and then bust them around the state. Uh, 
to be ready for when the gun confiscation thing hits. Or maybe they'll wait until uh, they start the confiscation movement, and then they'll fly them in in the middle of the night, uh, or even in the day, as a, as a solution to the problem. So they might bring them in ahead of time, or they might wait till it starts, and then say, here's the solution, and bring them in then. We shall see. But all I'm saying is be aware, be alert, be watchful, because I believe it is at the door. It's not something now that we speculate years away, but it's at the door. Now let's get back to the book of Zechariah with that in mind. Remember I've been over the information several times recently about the Roanoke colony and 430 years later being uh, July of 2017. And then we had that eclipse that summer as well that went clear across the nation at noon as Amos talks about. And I've also mentioned in the same context, and we talked about it quite a bit last week, the 70 years that Jeremiah said uh, they would be captives in Babylon and to build houses and prepare for a long captivity. And I've equated that to the end-time church because it does fit. Remember, Zechariah is an end-time prophecy, and it talks about the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, which is where the church has been since the time that Herbert Armstrong began to expand and do a work in the midst of Babylon. Now, Daniel understood that in Daniel 9. says, I understood by Jeremiah the 70 years. And then he goes ahead and prays a prayer in that book, or in that chapter, and he winds up talking about uh, the sanctuary, the temple, being defiled. And then toward the end of the chapter, he talks about Jerusalem being built in 70 weeks, and then the abomination set up. Christ talked about that in Matthew 24, saying, when you see that abomination set up in Jerusalem, is a time to flee to the mountains. Daniel ties that in with 70 years. The 70 years that they had been there in the captivity of Babylon. We also went to Jeremiah 25 and 29 and showed that at the end of the 70 years would come destruction. When you look at the end of the 430 years of Ezekiel laying on his side, it shows in Ezekiel 7 that the destruction of this nation comes shortly after the 4.30 ends. Uh, it is interesting to me to see that Daniel and Daniel 9 spoke in the first year of King Cyrus, or Darius, whichever name you want to use there, but it was the son of Ahasuerus and Esther. And he would have been friendly then as a half-Jew to Daniel and others. But it was in the first year of Cyrus' reign, right after Babylon had been destroyed, you go to Ezra, and Cyrus made the decree there in the first year of his reign that Daniel had told him the temple had to be built. I find that interesting with those two references to the first year of Cyrus, or Darius. When you go to the book of Haggai, that message was not given until the second year of Darius, or Cyrus. So, 
even though the subject had been brought up and Cyrus made a decree in Ezra, they must have been getting ready or fooling around or not getting it done or taking it for granted because two years later nothing had happened much, apparently. So God sends the message through Haggai and says, Hey, wait a minute. You're saying it isn't really time to build a temple, but I'm telling you it is. Two years later. Now Haggai is, in, is definitely an end time prophecy. We read in there just a couple of weeks ago how God said a little while and I'll shake the heavens and the earth. And at the end of the book he said, I'm going to shake it. No more little while in there. So, it is definitely at the end that this temple is to be built. And Daniel 9, if, if any book is an end time book, it's Daniel. Because he says it won't even be opened up to be understood until the end. So anybody who thought he understood Daniel 200 years ago or 50 years ago is all wet. Because all those historical explanations don't matter. They don't fit. It's an end time book having to do with the end time temple and end time Jerusalem. Because Christ said, when you see that, the end has come. Time to preach the gospel. Time to flee. Time for the three and a half years of great tribulation to start. So now let's go back to Zechariah 1 because when it mentioned the 70 years up here in verse 12 is when I took off to Jeremiah and Daniel and other places to talk about the 70 years and get the setting of it and how since 1947 we've been building houses, church houses and individual houses and that 70 years if you date it from uh, 1947 ended in the fall of 2017. The 430 years from Ronak ended in July of 2017. And Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 7 that it is near, it has come, it has come, it is near over and over, and that it won't be the echoing again of the hills. So when the 430 and the 70 end, it is very near. Now with that in mind, let's go back to Zechariah Remember, I told you that the myrtle trees there represent the church. Uh, one of the trees planted in the wilderness in Isaiah 41 is the myrtle. Now, we read in Ezekiel 17 that worldwide did not grow up as a stately tree, but more as a bush type of plant. It was a tree, but still a bush-like plant, which is more what the myrtle is. So, Haggai and Zechariah all the way through are talking about the end time church. The former temple, the latter temple, Herbert Armstrong. So, he saw by night, while it was still dark, the church is still in the dark, uh, this destruction coming on the myrtle tree. The red horse, the white horse, the bay horse, and so on. Those are there for destruction. Uh, that's what they symbolize. You see the same thing in Zechariah 6, which we went through two or three weeks ago. So he's talking about the church here in a time when it still basically sits still and is at rest. The World War III 
the, the destruction of this country, which is, sets it all off, has not yet occurred. But it's getting very, very close. As close as 250,000 troops just moved into Cuba that may be in America real soon. So let's understand that. So verse 12 then, The angel of the eternal answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you have had indignation these threescore and ten or seventy years? So here, in the context of the end-time church, of the gathering of ten percent and the two witnesses, he's talking about the seventy years. And he's talking about the time that that 70 years has had to do with what? The church. How long before you show mercy on us? Now, you and I have experienced over three decades now of trouble and confusion. And the 70 years has ended. And now we're beginning the third year since that ended, I do believe. He says, revive your work in the midst of the years, and in the third year, uh, do these things. So, maybe that's in the third year after the 4.30 and the 2017 ended. It appears things are moving very, very rapidly toward those events that will destroy this nation, perhaps within 12 months. I'm not prophesying that. I'm just saying, look at how fast it's escalating. And look at these dates in the Bible, and you know that it is very, very near. It has come. It is not going to be a long way off. Ezekiel makes that very clear. Now he says, how long before you have mercy? The 70 years apparently had ended here. So when are you going to show mercy? Now we see Daniel... In the first year of Cyrus, or Darius, we see uh, Ezra talking about the first year, and then Haggai's message comes in the second year, and so does Zechariah's toward the end of the second year, eighth month. So, that mercy, that blessing, had not returned. When are you going to show that? So here we are, two years well into two years, in the second year of Darius, that he is asking this, and God's mercy has not yet returned. So if we experience the end of the 70 years, in the fall of 2017, here we are, a little over two years later, saying, where's the mercy? It's right on schedule. So what does God have to say? So the angel that communed with me said to me, Cry you, saying, He says, You ask a question, How long before you show mercy and you return with good and comfortable words to your people? He says, Cry you, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. Now, he tells us throughout the prophecies that if he forgot us, a woman giving suck to her child would forget the child quicker. And how it's as the rainbow of Noah to him there in Isaiah 54. 
And on and on, God says he will not forsake us. Christ said himself in the New Testament, I will never forsake you or leave you. So, he, before he gives a judgment here, or a proclamation, he wants us to know, <clears throat> know that he really cares. We've seen many scriptures that show he's going to spew us out, turn his head from us, <coughs> and then he's going to turn it back to us. He's telling us here when. We've gone through the 70 years, nothing's happened. Haggai's in the second year, Zechariah's in the second year. All right, I haven't forgotten you, I'm jealous for you. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Now, I think this is telling us that God was not totally unhappy with Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide Church of God in those years when Herbert Armstrong was still there. He was a little displeased. And then when the Takachas, representing heathens, came in and took it right back to Protestantism and evangelical teaching and everything contrary and putrid to God, Christmas and Easter and the whole ball of wax. He became sore displeased. That's when he really got upset with us. And the church was kind of going along with all of this, most of it. When they preached sundown or Sabbath from sun, 6 o'clock to 6 o'clock in Alaska, I only know of three families out of about 500 people there who said, no, we're going to keep it from sundown to sundown. And the sun did go down there. The rest of them just got up and said, oh, okay, wonderful. He said, it's okay to eat pig. That evening, my daughter was working at McDonald's. And here come all these church members coming through ordering pig sandwiches. Just like that. So he was somewhat displeased with us, not entirely displeased. And then he became sorely displeased and spewed us out. So this is recent history, right? We lived it. We saw it, most of us. Some of us are too young to have experienced it personally, but most of us did. I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore... Thus says the Eternal, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, says the Eternal of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. When do you stretch a line? When you're going to build something. You lay it out. I've built a lot of buildings. I stretch strings out and measure it all up and get it squared up before I start building. Because that's the way you do it. So if the line stretched on it, that means one of two things. You're stretching lines in order to get it laid out right to build it. Or it can also be a plumb bob to see if it's straight. To make sure it is straight and stays straight as you build it. And he says that Zerubbabel will have a line in his hand. He's there to 
measure the righteousness and the uprightness of what is going on because this latter temple has to far outshine what we experienced in the former temple under Herbert Armstrong and then the Takajas. So he says here in Zechariah, his temple, his house, will be built in it. And Jerusalem uh, will have a line stretched upon it. So he comes to the end of the 70 years. This book was written two years thereafter, saying, when are you going to show this mercy? So then he says, I'm returned with mercy. I haven't forgotten you. And this will be done. So I'm assuming that means right away. Now, it was apparently two plus years before they began to really work on the temple there in Ezra. Interestingly enough, they had enemies arise and it took 17 years of delay. They ceased building on the temple. They started then they ceased for 17 years. Then they were able to start up again after the decree of Artaxerxes there. And they finished it in 23 years. Interesting numbers. I don't know exactly how to put them together. But we came here and formally began to take, move in here right at the end of 2002 in December and on into January of '03. Uh, we have now had a 17-year delay until 2019 uh, in getting anything much done. We've been sitting here marking time. They sat and marked time for 17 years, and then they could get on with building. Does that mean anything for us? I don't know, but it sure is suspicious, isn't it? sure is a strange coincidence. Not only that, Jeremiah preached for 23 years that they were going to go into captivity, and 23 years later, it happened. With the temple back then, they started it, they were delayed 17 years, and 23 years later, it was finished. So, the 17 and the 23 somehow may figure prominently in this when it's all said and done. Is it almost time to begin building the temple? I think if we understand when the 6,000 years ends and the at least near time frame of when Christ will return, it has to be built really soon now. So, this is a statement God makes two years after the 70 years ended. Same as Haggai and Zechariah starting. And here we sit, 72 years, I believe, from the end of the 70. Same time frame. So he says, cry yet. Don't, don't forget it. Say it. Thus says the eternal of hosts, my cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad. And the eternal shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. So who is the church? Zion and Jerusalem, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. And also the physical city. Zechariah 12 says Jerusalem will be built in her own place. Even her own place. The one in the Middle East is not it. So he says here, shortly after the 70 years, after 72 perhaps, I think, uh, he's giving us a message of comfort 
and that he's going to get this thing done. Now, what's the next thing that happens? We've been sitting here delayed for 17 years, right? From the time we started to formally move on to this land. Now it's been 17 years. What's the next thing he says that is going to happen? Verse 18, I lifted up my eyes and saw and behold four horns. Horns represent power. A bull has horns to gouge and to uh, gore. I saw four horns. And I said to the angel that talked with me, Well, what be these? Now he says, I'm, I'm giving you good and comfortable words, and I'm going to yet choose Jerusalem now. Seventy years is done. It's time for this to happen. Jeremiah said, after 70 years, it would happen. Daniel said, after 70 years, it would happen. And Daniel was referring to the sanctuary being cleansed, the temple, and the building of Jerusalem. So we're here talking about the same time frame, okay? That Daniel spoke of and Zechariah speaking of. So then he said, good and comfortable words, and then he says, i got these four horns. Well, what are they about? The angel talked with me, what be these? And he answered me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. They were there, and their overall purpose ultimately was destruction. Now, when we learned about Jerusalem, we knew about Zion when we got here. Most everybody came here knew about Zion before they got here. But quite a few would not accept the idea that Jerusalem was near Zion and began to pull back and to do different things and found all kinds of reasons to uh, lose faith and trust in me as the leader. So now we have enemies who are trying to destroy. They have a lawsuit right now, their second one, trying to take this land from you from the church. It states that. They want to be given all this land, including your lots and houses. They're trying to destroy what is here, or take it over. And there certainly has been a scattering over these 17 years. And the Eternal showed me four carpenters. Now, a horn gores and destroys. A carpenter builds. Then said I, what come these to do? And he spoke, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, referenced above, so that no man did lift up his head. There's a scripture we read recently that says we'd be ashamed to even raise up our head because of the destruction that has occurred. But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So they're in the process of trying to scatter it now with lawsuits to break me financially. They withheld $40,000 plus of lease payments to try to force me to give them the land, all of the land. All 110 acres, not just what's in the TIC now. They've been trying to get rid of me. They offered me $200,000. If I would use 100000 of it to pay off the mortgage and put 100000 in my pocket, 
and walk away from you and leave you at their mercy. You know what I think? I think you are worth more than $100,000 by a long shot. I consider it for zero seconds. I wasn't going to do that. No way. Well, okay. I think we could identify fairly easily four who are leading the destruction. And I think we could fairly easily come up with four old heads around here, that's all that are left, that could possibly be the ones who do the casting out and fraying them. You know what happens when you fray something? Put a piece of cloth, stick it out your window in your car and drive a thousand miles. See what it looks like at the end of the thousand miles. It'll all be frayed and come apart and be a mess. Won't be usable. So when it says fray, it means shake them to rag dolls and cast them out because they're to destroy. So before God starts the building, He's got to get rid of those who have been doing the destroying. That's next here in context. Gives us good and comfortable words. What do we get from Isaiah 40 forward? Comfortable words that our warfare is ended, that God is going to begin to bless and how beautiful a message it is of how he will gather his people and build his temple and come and do his work here at Zion and Jerusalem. But you've got to get rid of the enemies. So they are slated to go. It's right here in the book. Jeremiah 11 says they'll be cast out into war and famine and everyone die there, every one of them, man, woman, and child. says the same thing in Micah 4 and another place in, maybe in Isaiah 41, where it talks about giving us uh, sharp teeth as a threshing instrument to cast out the horns of the Gentiles. Well, these are unconverted people at this point. They are following their father, the devil, who is a destroyer. Let's just put it the way it is. They must go. So, then it changes in chapter 2. After he says that's going to be taken care of, it's got to happen. Then it says, I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And he said he used to measure Jerusalem to see what is the breadth and what's the length thereof. God says he's going to bring 10%, and uh, that's how much is going to be. And the angel that talked with me went forth, and another went out to meet him. And he said, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. So Jerusalem is to be inhabited again, this Jerusalem here, and it will be as towns without walls, not just one city. But God's people will come together, and they're going to be living in different places. Maybe, and from another reference, it may be that only 10% come to build and work in the temple of the 10% that come from the church. Only 10% of them may be in the construction, because it talks about rebuilding the cities of Jerusalem around in the Promised Land. 
and the people will go there. So, villages anyway, and men and cattle. For I, says the Eternal, will be to you a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So his glory in some ways is going to show. If you read toward the end of Ezekiel, you'll find that maybe Gog and Magog in the hordes of the east will attack from the west, and God will destroy them. And it'll take seven months to gather them and their junk up and clean the land. Micah 5 indicates the Assyrian will come against us, along with Isaiah, what is it, 8 or 9, 10, somewhere right in there, and try to enslave us. But Micah 5 says some principal men will go out against the Assyrian and send them packing. So, what's this wall of fire for? It's God protecting His people who He brings here to build His temple. Now, when is this going to happen? He says, Come forth and flee from the land of the north, says the Eternal. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, says the Eternal. He has scattered the church to the wind in every direction. That's where we have been. So he says, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So you deliver yourself. You get out of and away from the daughter of Babylon. That's what he tells us in Micah 4. He says, get out of the city, go dwell in the wilderness, and there will I deliver you. Saying the same thing here. Isaiah 52 says, when the leadership begins to come together, and then it shows the Passover, then it shows the gathering in chapter 54 of Isaiah, uh, you flee ahead of the northern army. But it's not in haste. Jeremiah 50 says that they'll come looking for Zion. So there is some time there. It's not 40 years or 10 years. In Matthew 24, when the abomination is set up in the temple, you flee right then. And it's in great haste without going back in the house. Or you'll be killed. But here, it gives some time ahead of the time that this nation is completely invaded. Civil war may start first, but there's going to be some time to get here from all over the world and ability to travel some way, even in the confusion. So he says, deliver yourself, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Uh, the, the RSV there translates that, instead of deliver yourself, it says, flee to Zion, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Makes it clear where to go. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, after the glory has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you. For he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. He just said our enemies are going to be cast out that we already have so that he can begin this process. And then we find in other places, the Assyrian and the Gog and Magog are going to come against us, and he will be our wall of protection and destroy them, so that they cannot do anything to the daughter of Zion. We're the apple of his eye. 
For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me. So then what does he do? He gives us this good, comfortable message that he just mentioned in the last chapter. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. And many will be joined to you in that day, and they shall be my people, and dwell in the midst of you. And you know that I am God. And the Eternal shall inherit Judah, his portion, in the Holy Land, and choose Jerusalem again. What is his portion? Ten percent. Whether you're talking about tithe, or whether you're talking about his people. Then he says, Be silent, O all flesh, before the Eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He's standing up, and he's ready to get to work at the end of those 70 plus two years. And he's going to choose Jerusalem again. Now we can go to chapter 3, and he introduces the leadership, begins to introduce the leadership of the church for this period of time. And he says that Satan has resisted, but God will give uh, clothing of righteousness. Now, what does he say at the end of Isaiah 54 when he's talking about the gathering? He says, I will give you my righteousness, not our self-righteousness, but his righteousness. He can inspire true righteousness in his people. We had a lot of self-righteousness in Worldwide. That has to go away and be replaced with His righteousness. That's what we should be working on right now. It isn't just Joshua here. It's all of us. He's talking to a greater group of people in Zechariah 6 when he says, Diligently obey and these things shall come to pass. It's all of us. Joshua is just the leader and is pointed out, of course, as the one that needed to be righteous instead of filthy. Well, we all need to be righteous instead of filthy. What does he say in Isaiah 52? Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. All of us will be called on to bear the vessels of the eternal. So we boil it down and say, well, that must be just that guy that's filthy. No, it was all of us. Didn't we all get spewed? Don't we all have to be cleansed and given garments of righteousness? His righteousness? Yes, we do. But there he talks and says that he'll bring forth his servant, the branch, which is the type of Zerubbabel. And before Joshua is this one stone with the seven eyes of God on it. That would be Christ. And there will be signs and wonders. So you want to know when the gathering comes? It's when God shows signs and wonders and shows where he's working. Christ has arisen to do his work. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. He is going to restore um, wealth, health, healings, food, good food. Says it's going to make it like the Garden of Eden there in Isaiah 50, 51, I guess it is. No, 50, 55. And then he goes on and talks about the two olive trees, which are the two olive trees of Zechariah 11, I mean the Revelation 11, 
who will preach the gospel to the world as a witness, and then the end will come. And he addresses Zerubbabel here, and he says in verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Everything is going to be done by the power of God, not the power of man. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. God is going to give Zerubbabel power over the nations. Makes him his signet, he says, the last verse of the book of Haggai. And can pronounce plagues upon whoever, whenever. The two can. So, before Zerubbabel, God is going to give great power. And he says, the hands of Zerubbabel in verse 9 laid the foundation of the temple, the house. His hand shall also finish it. And you'll know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. Now, this chapter opened with these two olive trees, or these two witnesses, these two leaders at the end, giving oil, the spirit, the instruction that the church needs. So he's going to gather the church. He says, flee from Babylon, go to Zion, and then, because of the miracles, they'll understand the time. They will come, and then they will be taught the things that they need to know to catch them up. You've got people scattered all over the world now who are seeking to obey God, who haven't bowed their knee to Baal, but they're not up to date on everything that needs to be done. The building of the temple, the building of Jerusalem, uh, the building of the church, the correct doctrines that we've learned, and maybe more, got to be taught. That's what Zechariah 4 is about. Chapter 5 talks about the setting up of worldwide in Babylon and being forgotten. And then the destruction we read about in chapter 1 is reiterated here in chapter 6 and talks about the building of the temple. The leadership will see eye to eye, and if we will be righteous and obedient, uh, verse 15, they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. This shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal, your God. So, one phase of the end time work, the final work, is the gathering, the teaching, and restoration of the spiritual temple so that those people can then go and bear the vessels of the eternal and build a physical temple. Let's go from there to Daniel and pick this story up a little bit. I've referred to it, and I even came back here, I think, briefly, but in Daniel 11, remember this is in, I mean 9, excuse me, chapter 9, this is an end-time prophecy that starts out with the 70 years being completed that Jeremiah spoke of, which we talked about last week. And then, this scares Daniel. So he begins to pray that God will have mercy to them that love him, to them that keep his commandments into chapter or verse 4. And then he talks about how we haven't hearkened to the prophets. How did Zechariah 1 start? You haven't hearkened to the prophets. This is an end-time message. It's an end-time prayer recorded for you and me right now. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, 
but to us confusion of faces as at this day. Here we are, the 70 years I believe has ended. We're two years down the road of Haggai and Zechariah's message, and we're still in confusion of face. So this is a prayer that could be prayed today. We've trespassed against you. End of verse 8. We've sinned against you. To you belong mercy and forgiveness. What do we pray today? Have mercy and forgiveness on us. We're not perfect yet. We still sin. We're trying to diligently obey, but we fall short. Please be merciful. Then he says, all Israel, in verse 11, have transgressed your law. And we haven't obeyed. And the curse is poured on us. Aren't we still suffering from this curse that we've suffered over these last three decades plus? Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the eternal our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. How many have? Ninety percent of the church won't until they're in the middle of the tribulation. Ten percent are listening, but they don't yet understand his truth. They haven't come out from Babylon. They will shortly. And then they'll be taught his truth. Zechariah 4, we just went over it. The golden oil will come out of the two leaders to teach them what they need to know and what the truth is. Therefore has the eternal watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For our God is righteous in all his works, which he does. So then Daniel sort of sums that up and says, And now, O Lord, our God, you've brought your people forth out of the land of Mitzrayim with a mighty hand, and have gotten you renowned, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Now, doesn't he say in some of the prophecies, I won't go there right now, but we've read them, how he is going to do things in the manner in which he did them to bring Israel out of Ephraim, I mean out of Mitzrayim. And doesn't he say he's going to give the witnesses there in Revelation the, the power to do those plagues of Egypt as often as they wish, whenever they want, all over the world? This is a now prayer. This is an end time prayer. We've sinned. We've done wickedly. O, o eternal, verse 16 According to all your righteousness, I beseech you, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Turn your anger from the church. Didn't we just read in Jeremiah, I mean in Zechariah, how he's going to speak good and comfortable words, get rid of her enemies, and that his people then can gather, just ahead of the total destruction of the nation. Daniel is leading up to that very thing right here in verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of your serpent, servant, not servant, and his supplications, and cause your face to shine upon the sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. There is no temple. There are no sacrifices. The church itself, the spiritual temple, is desolate. The physical temple does not even exist at this point. So shine your face on that. Doesn't he say, I'll turn my face and shine on you and bless you double for all the curses you've been through? Isaiah 40 says that. 
Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you for our righteousness, but for your great mercy. That's my prayer. Is that your prayer? That we all have the mercy of God? And we can't stand before Him and say, Oh God, I'm so righteous, you just have to do this for me. No. Not us. Not for our righteousness, but for your mercies. O Lord, hear. O Eternal, forgive. O Eternal, hearken and do. Defer not. Doesn't he say there in Ezekiel 7, it won't be deferred, it's coming, it's coming, it's come, it's come, it's come, it's near, it's at the gates, it won't be echoing. Defer not. He's giving this prayer at the end of the 70 years <coughs> when this, the Persians have come in. It's talking about now. Isn't that what God tells us there in Jeremiah, I believe it's 29? Seek me with all your heart, and when you do, you will find me, and I will be found of you. That's what Daniel's praying here in our behalf right now. We'll come before you and we'll present ourselves and ask for your great mercy and that you will be found of us. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people <coughs> and presenting my supplication, here comes an angel. While I was still speaking, verse 21, in prayer, even Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation when the sacrifice was done toward uh, 3 o'clock. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and understanding. Now, this, we are, we are I believe, past the 70 years now by a couple of years. And Haggai and Zechariah are now on a timeline. Don't think we have long to wait. Won't be echoing again of the hills. It will be soon. So, he came to give him skill and understanding. Well, here we are at the end. Isn't it time to understand some of this? It will be understood at the end. End of the age. At the beginning of your supplications, the command came forth, and I am come to show you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. So he'd been given a vision, and here is an explanation. Seventy weeks are determined upon your people, that's the church and the holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Uh, if you go into the Hebrew here, the most holy may be speaking not only of God, but of the one who represents him in Zerubbabel. Anyway, know that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be these 70 weeks. Now, 
Christ has not returned at the end of these 70 weeks. So in the context, it's not necessarily talking about him. Do you follow that? Christ doesn't come. The 70 weeks of the building of Jerusalem end with the defiling of the temple. Right here at the very end of this. That caused the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. So it's Jerusalem is given the order to be built. Seventy weeks later, you have the abomination of desolation set up there because the temple will have already been built and Jerusalem then built. So you'll have the temple and Jerusalem there and the temple will be defiled. Now Christ said in Matthew 24, when it is defiled, and he says, I'm referring to Daniel, right there in Matthew 24. When this defiling occurs, flee to the mountains of Judea, flee to Zion, there you will be protected. So, that's the beginning of the tribulation. The tribulation begins when that abomination is set up in the temple here at Jerusalem. And the church flees to Zion. Then you have three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days of preaching the gospel around the world as a witness. The two witnesses are killed at the end of that 1260. And in the first resurrection, three days later. So this isn't talking about the ending of all unrighteousness here in Daniel 9. It's not talking of the coming of the Messiah until this whole thing is played out. It's talking about righteous leadership that God sets up to lead the church where it is supposed to go. And it is aimed toward everlasting righteousness. And the events that occur here are going to usher in the return of Christ three and a half years later. So it is the beginning of the things that have to occur in order for Christ's righteousness to be here. But he has his representatives here as a representation of his righteousness as this is being built. But real righteousness does not come in until Christ returns and then sets up the millennium and the whole earth is ruled under righteousness. So this is talking of those events just prior to and leading up to his return. So we, we know we're on a timeline here when the command to build Jerusalem is given. Seventy weeks later, the abomination is set up. Three and a half years later, Christ returns. It's that simple. So what is the last phase of the end time work of God? It's that three and a half years then of going and preaching the gospel around the world as a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come, as it clearly states in Matthew 24. So what do we have? Let's summarize this. Herbert Armstrong's work ended in Isaiah 39, and his sons, the church, were made eunuchs in Babylon. 
Just as when Daniel, Ezra, I mean Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and others were taken captive to Babylon, they were made eunuchs. Daniel didn't have any trouble figuring this time element out. You know what I mean? From the day he was castrated when he got into Babylon, it wasn't too hard. He remembered that. So it wasn't too hard to count up 70 years when Babylon fell and Ahasuerus and Esther's son took over. He could count to 70. And then from that time forth, Cyrus was of a mind to build the temple. But it hadn't happened two years later because here comes the message to Haggai and then to Zechariah well into the second year saying, it's time, wake up. Then God stirs the people to actually come and do it. That's an end-time prophecy. So, here is the way it's laid out. First, Isaiah 40 comes into play. A message has to be made of comfort to God's church, because we've been through all this confusion since we've been scattered. So a message has to come giving us resolution to show us a time when God will not be frowning at us, but will turn His face to us. A message of comfort that our warfare is done and will be protected and taken care of. You read through from Isaiah 40 where that begins all the way through 55 and on, and it shows events that will occur during that time. He'll bring the church and build it in the wilderness. We'll be His witnesses, the church will, that He is God. He'll bring forth his treasures to build the temple and to prove that he is God. He will destroy Babylon, chapter 47 and 8. That's coming up real soon now. And then he says, awake up, chapter 51 and 52. Shows a gathering in chapter 54, after, probably after Passover. Because there's an incept chapter about nothing but the Passover in 53. So he lays it out. First, a message. Then a gathering to build the temple of God. Then, an order given to build Jerusalem. And 70 weeks later, from that order, comes the abomination of desolation. Then, the final preaching of the gospel begins and lasts three and a half years. And then the end comes. So if you know what we got to do, we got to be here to prepare a place, a highway in the wilderness for God to bring His people. And He will bring them. And then He will use them to build His temple as Haggai shows us. And He will give us leadership to teach us what we need to know. And these, will all, these things will all happen if we will obey. There's got to be somebody on this earth that obeys God. Got to be somebody. And even they say, not by our righteousness, but because of your mercies. So there you have it. Prepare a way in the wilderness. Build a temple. Build a church. Uh, build Jerusalem. Flee to Zion. And then the two preach for three and a half years. And that's the end of it. So that's what the latter temple does. That's the commission. That's the work. 
Peter, James, John, Paul had a work. Noah had a work. Elijah had a work. Moses had a work. Herbert Armstrong had a work to call many people out of whom God might choose a few than present. Herbert Armstrong fulfilled that. God wasn't fully pleased, but a little displeased with him and us. And then Tkachas, the heathen, came in and he became sorely displeased and scattered us. And now we've been supposedly repenting, and I hope we have. And God will begin soon to gather to build the temple. And then to build Jerusalem. And then we flee and are protected for three and a half years while the gospel goes out. And then the end comes. So there you have a summary. How many, how many phases is that? A message in preparing a place is one. Gathering might be counted two. Getting ready to build. Building the temple is three. Uh, building Jerusalem is four. Preaching the gospel of the world is five. So five steps, broken down that way, to the latter temple and what must be done by the time Christ returns. And I believe that we are on the verge of that. Uh, from all that we can put together time-wise, it seems that we're there. And then you look at what's happening in this nation in Washington, what's happening uh, across the country. We've just been in the last three years turned over to the queer society. We've been turned away from the Constitution of the United States, and now they're kicking Christians into jail. In this country, you can say a Muslim prayer, you can't pray to God. This has all happened in the last few years. And now Washington is imploding upon itself. And some of them are beginning to say, we've got to have a civil war or we're going to jail, the Democrats. This thing is upon us, brethren. Whether these prophecies match time-wise or not, this nation does not have long to exist. You can see that by what's happening. And now 250,000 U.N. troops move into Cuba. What does Cuba need them for? No reason. Their people are completely in subjection. Don't need any peacekeepers there. Where does the U.N. think peacekeeping needs to be done? Right here in America. Because the whole world is against who? Israelites. It's not Christianity, it's Israelites thereafter. Israel is the one that has Christ's name. They're not Christians, but they have Christ's name. They, the Gentiles want to kill Israel. They've been ruling over us now in a Babylonian government. And now our government is selling us out. Jeremiah 50 and 51 lay the whole thing out for you. And it says we'll have civil war in the land, ruler against ruler, with violence. The rulers of this country are going to start killing one another. Aren't they saying it now, openly? That senator needs to die. We need to hang Trump. If we can't impeach him, we're going to have to kill him. This is being said. 
And people are not going to jail for it. You would have ten years ago. To make a threat like that? They'd have thrown you in jail right now. Now it's common. It's about to blow in, blow up in Washington, D.C. Just like Jeremiah 50 and 51 says. And there's several instances in those two chapters where it says then, flee to Zion. Find your way to Zion. Just like Zechariah, uh, end of, well, in chapter 2. Flee to Zion, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. This time is very near. It is very short. There is a great deal of work that needs to be done. And preparing for those 10% who are going to come is up first. Got to be done. What are you going to do? 7, 8, 10, 12,000 people show up. Where are you going to put them? Where are you going to feed them? Where are they going to potty? Where are they going to drink? That's part of the first phase. We've got to get it done. And God has called these few, and no more, to somehow, by His power, get it done. Because you and I is old and crippled and weak and having to support ourselves with jobs or whatever, don't have time or ability or the money to do it. So what do we need to be doing? Praying like Daniel did, that he will turn his face to us and bless us and shine on us and give us the capacity, not because of our righteousness, but his great and tender mercies, to allow us to be a part of the work of the living God, the last work, the latter temple. You're here, you have the understanding. Therefore, God expects you to be part of it. So let's all pray for his forgiveness and tender mercy that we can be included as a part of what he is doing to straighten this world out and to usher in the kingdom of God.